Welcome, everyone. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor of AdvisoryAnalyst.com. My co-hosts today are Mike Philbrick and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management, SEZC. Our special guest is Arthur Salzer, CEO and CIO of Northland Wealth Management, one of Canada's leading family offices. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. Arthur, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Pierre. Great to see you again, Mike and Rodrigo. Good to see you as well. Great to have you hanging out with us today. I think it would make sense to probably uh, kick off with um, you telling us a little bit about yourself, your, your career arc. Um, where you started and how you got to where you are today. No, I'm glad to. Um, it all began back in 1977. And I think I caught uh, Star Wars 15, 16 times at the theater on Ottawa Street in Hamilton. And then I associated with Luke Skywalker looking up to the to twin moons and saying, how the heck do I get out of here? Uh, and and growing up on a farm uh, until 20 I had a good dose of it so what it really amounted to was I I wanted to to get out of the country I wanted to see the world and I wanted to learn Uh, so I was the first student to fast track through high school in Ontario and I entered university at 17 and ended at 20 uh, between high school and university, I did my real estate broker's course. So I was able to buy and sell real estate the day I turned 18. Um, early 20s, got out of university, was during the, um, the, the, the weak economic environment that we had in the early 90s, that 91 dep- recession, almost depression, and did my RR, did most of my CIM. And I worked for my own family, uh, buying real estate for them. And back then, there was no uh, realtor.ca. I would go down every Saturday morning, going to the Hamilton real estate office, pull out the papers um, for the, the new listings, and start going through them, trying to find buildings to, uh, to buy. Um, Year and a half after that, got a job uh, at TD Bank. I worked in retail for two years, uh, lending money and, and, in fact, taking people's homes from them, uh, terming out their lines of credit, uh, making their cash flow tighter, and really showing them uh, how much the Canadian banks really cared for them. Uh, <laughs> from, from then... Um, I did get to go to uh, TD Private Investment Council, but the, the funny part was when I was doing my CFA, um, the head of the region for human resources came down to meet with me. And she said, we don't want you taking the CFA program. Uh, it's not good. It's not what we want for you. And we're not going to pay for it. And I said, thank you very much. However, if I waited for TD Bank 
to pay for my education, I wouldn't have had my real estate broker's license when I was 17. I wouldn't have graduated from university at 20. I wouldn't have done my accredited appraiser at the Canadian Institute. I wouldn't have done my RR or my CIM. And in fact, you can't tell me what I read outside of my business hours. So too bad. Um, they didn't like that response. Um, but fortunately, I sent enough business to um, the, the trust department that they hired me. They had to. And I ended up spending six years uh, working for uh, the founder of TD Asset Management and TD Private Investment Council, uh, Robert Gorman. And somewhere around 2001, I determined that the bank um, was too limiting in, in what I wanted to earn for a living. And I left without a firm to go to. I was fortunate to get hired at uh, Leon Fraser. And I worked for George Fraser. And I was mentored to him by almost eight years. And at that point, wow. he had been managing money since 42, 43. Uh, so somewhere around 60 plus years of investment experience. Uh, I'd already been 10 years in the industry, had a CFA designation, and it really was um, the icing on the cake for, for what I needed to learn as a, as a professional. Um, Leon Fraser was bought by a public company. Uh, Jovian, and we were becoming institutionalized. Uh, I didn't see a future there and left. Um, within a period of about a year and a half, uh, maybe two years, I founded Northland Wealth in 2011. And since then, um, it's, it's been a fun ride, um, learning a lot about various asset classes, um, private equity, private real estate, private debt, hedge funds, and even Bitcoin. And I would say today that we have one of the largest, if not largest, um, network for institutional quality alternatives uh, in Canada outside the pensions. And so how did you, uh, so I suppose the, the formative years of, of actually getting your fingers dirty and in the, in the paper and the, and looking at uh, listings and, and sort of understanding cash flows has continued to sort of tilt your practice to some degree towards those types of assets. Um, and, and have clients responded well to that? Is that something that, that is the uh, dominant feature of what you're doing for clients as a differentiator or is it dominant in the asset uh, allocation? How, how do you look at that at Northland? I think it's really, it's about, taking experiences and using the correct parts of them to help forecast and, and take advantage of the future. So for instance, my first job at TD was again, taking people's homes from them, uh, seeing what a real estate crash looked like. And when I let, left Leon Fraser, I co-founded a distressed US real estate fund. And we invested in multifamily uh, through the small states, Florida, Georgia, Texas, uh, Arizona. And people that I told about it, they said, don't you understand 
how bad the real estate market is in the United States. And I said, yes, I do. I said, that's why we're buying. Mm -hmm. It's it's at 50% of replacement cost. Uh, Cap rates are eight to to 10% uh, without leverage. Why wouldn't you want to do it? And it's a dollar four. It was really a buy of a, of a life of a lifetime. And we, we made extreme returns for clients. Um, and then when we started to invest in secondary private equity versus doing club deals, uh, returns did super well. Uh, we got into tech at the right time by investing in a manager that discovered Shopify in 2011. Uh, we, we got in for our families at a $70 million valuation. And it's really just continued to progress. And fortunately, uh, in 2017, I got introduced to Bitcoin. Uh, we didn't buy in 2017, but from May 2017 on, did two years of research before we started putting capital to work. So it's it's about trying to take what you see and what you've learned and and use it going forward. Can you break that down into a bit of a framework for us? Um, you know, the idea that that there's is there a checklist? Is the checklist in your head? Um, like, how, how are you thinking about that as the CIO on behalf of um, your your families? And then and then also understanding that um, you know, no matter how much evidence there is, sometimes things take longer or they evolve differently than we might might believe. So, how do we how do you how do you think about diversifying that risk? So two questions there. Bit of a framework from the top down and then and then you know that in that framework will probably include some of the answers to the second question. Absolutely. Um, today people talk about data and it's data this, data that. What does the data show? And I don't think we would have discovered anything relying on data. It's it's intuition that you you make a guess, you make a judgment, and then you, using first principles of science, try to prove that thesis wrong. And if you can't do it, then the thesis holds. And I think that's the best way to make investment decisions. Uh, so when we look at the current state of the world, um, it, it's always trying to piece together different goings on to, to, to come up with a, a, a macro picture and then have the data disprove it. Um, it's not what most people do, but I think it's a, it's a better approach. And again, using first principles, if you disprove your, your thesis, then you need to alter it or completely, um, eliminate it because it's null and void. So you, you always try to disprove your thesis. I think that's, that's the key. That's where you use data properly. So when we look at the world today and using real estate, using residential real estate in Toronto, for instance, it's very difficult to say that the average price of a home in the last decade has gone from 300 350 to north of a million dollars. 
and that's because the houses are better or they've been improved in some way or they're less, um, they're, they're more rare. And that's not the case. It, it's simply that the denominator, the currency is going down. And, and I wish it was more than that, but it's not. The, the trick is now that we understand there's a trend and there can be counter trends and there can be smaller cycles within the larger trend. But the trend seems to be there that governments are continuing to flood the, the world economy with liquidity and there's consequences to it. So, so is, I, it the, is it the liquidity or is it inflation or is it a combination of both to you? There's, there's definitely asset inflation. Yeah. But because of technology, uh, inflation and things like televisions, a 60-inch screen now is what? Five six hundred, and in early two thousand it was twenty grand. Um, I guess that's deflationary, but the cost of the living to either rent or to to buy a shelter that's gone up. So you have to look at the pockets and and be very clear on on how you're trying to define inflation. Uh, but just traditional inflation. You know, oil's about the same uh, as it was 13, 14 years ago. Car prices are higher, but you replace them less. Uh, so there's there's lots of arguments, but asset prices, stocks, bonds, real estate, you know, Bitcoin, gold, it's all a lot higher than 10, 15 years ago. So was that, would you say that that was due to, sorry, Rodrigo, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. Would you say that that was due to um, all of the money printing and there was no alternative uh, trend in terms of of sort of, you know, the Fed and central banks in general flushing investors out of the bond market and into, into, into financial assets or, sorry, into equities, into real estate? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a huge push into risk assets, and people that used to hold government bonds 10, 15, 20 years ago um, made call it what two, three hundred basis points above inflation. That's no longer the case, and with negative rates, then you can argue that you're you're paying the banks to to hold cash. Um, and I think with digital currencies, it's possible to, to speed up the cycle where theoretically a government central bank could say, you know, come the end of the month, we've got a new, uh, currency and yours expires just like a loyalty points program from, um, you know, an airline. So that that's a big change, and, and I think that's something that's coming. It, it's not here yet. It might be five, ten years, um, but it seems to be the trend. Yeah. So we have we have a, a period since 1982 where you've been able to have a hedge to your equity portfolio and get a massive carry 
on that. So you've had positive carry with a negatively correlated asset to your equity portfolio, and that no longer exists. We certainly don't have the positive carry. It's possible that that bonds do respond uh, in a non-correlated way to equities. It's also possible we go through a 70s period where they are correlated to equities. So that's a possibility as well. How are you addressing that in portfolios, given that set of circumstances? How do you think about the balance in your portfolios for Northland's families? When we talk to families or the industry, we, we talk about the new 60-40. And 60-40 used to be 60% public equity and 40% fixed income. And today we're actually probably three years ago, four years ago, we were saying it was 60% public markets, 40% alternatives, whether it's private equity, private real estate, um, gold hedge funds. And I think it's even swung where it may be 40% public markets and 60% alternatives. Um, So things like real estate have done very well. It, as an asset class, exhibits positive carry. Uh, You can borrow less expensively than the cap rate for now. And that still makes it a preferred asset class for many ultra high net worth families because of the tax treatment of the return of capital um, through depreciation and an interest um interest write-offs. So we, we, we like real estate. Um, and it's probably also why we bought, bought Bitcoin. It's, it seems to be, um, it walks its own path. And, and you might call it uncorrelated. You may not. It's a risk asset. But it seems to have its own cycle. In the shorter term, it may move with other risk assets like equities. But over the longer term, it seems to have done its own thing. And it's been a phenomenal hedge the last two years. And when you think about that portfolio construction today, which is heavy on the alternatives and then less so on the public markets now, how do you divide? What's the risk curve look like for you between hedge funds, real estate, Bitcoin, and and uh, BC. So real estate's probably somewhere between ten and twenty five percent of a family's portfolio, maybe even thirty. Um, hedge funds have typically been on the credit side. Global macro, we didn't see a lot of edge the last decade, so we haven't invested there. Short managers. Because of the lack of carry, they short and then they get no interest return um, is difficult. And the only place where you can borrow inexpensively and leverage it up was, was credit markets. Uh, so, so most of the hedge funds have been in credit. Uh, we like private debt. Um, obviously, there, there is some competition from the banks coming back. Uh, we've seen that the last year or so. But if you can, on a net basis, lend at 700 to 800 basis points higher than what you would get on 
comparable corporate debt and have better coverage and better collateral, then it, it seems like a no-brainer. It's not super tax efficient, but risk and return, it's still a, a great place to, to have part of your portfolio. From a Bitcoin perspective, um, we started with a 5% allocation. And we're probably averaging somewhere between 10 and 15% now. Uh, it's, it's due to where we are in the cycle. And it's highly probable that if the cycle follows past cycles, there may be some point at the end of this year, early next year, where we have a 0% allocation. It doesn't mean that we won't have exposure to that asset class over this decade, but given the cyclicality that Bitcoin has exhibited, we are very careful of those 70 to 80% drawdowns. Um, and private equity, yeah. Sorry, go yeah. ahead, finish up. Uh, private equity, it's probably 5 to 20% of portfolios, depending on the family. Uh, secondaries typically are the core. Uh, we like the way that it, that it diversifies across vintage's risk, uh, as well as manager and return versus regular buyouts or even VC is more likely to be closer to, to high teens, low twenties than those other ones. So that's really where we start. And then we build out a PA program from there. So Arthur, um, you uh, you researched. I just want to go back to the Bitcoin. Um, you researched Bitcoin for two years, and and then you decided to go ahead. But what, what did your research uncover uh, for you that was the deciding factor? It's it's common knowledge today, but what I saw was the institution institutionalization. The, the plumbing of the asset class, the on-ramps uh, getting built. And I spent time with the heads of Fidelity Digital, with BACT, Arisax, um, some of the best VC uh, investors in the space, uh, thought leaders like Nick Carter, um, Dan Moorhead, um, Pretty much anybody that's anyone in that space. Uh, advisors to George Soros, advisors to Bill Miller, advisors to Peter Lynch's family office. And with those on-ramps getting built, I thought the next natural buyer would be institutions. And if I didn't see that, it would have been something for my own PA but not necessarily for families because right. as a family office, we're registered. And that means we have a fiduciary obligation to always put our clients first and to not see any change or, or any, you know, potential um, Bitcoin by itself would, would just be too risky. 
Yeah, but as a part of the portfolio, it it has different. It, it yeah, provides absolutely. it. I mean, it brings a different quality to the whole portfolio. But now you said you said uh, one thing that you just said also, uh, which I wanted to ask you about was that in the next couple of years, your allocation to Bitcoin could drop to zero. Uh, are you referring? Do you mean a, uh, an exit from Bitcoin completely? Yeah. And then, yeah. and then, uh, given that, and given sort of the longer term outlook. Uh, or outlooks that are out there for Bitcoin. Um, how would you, would you just simply, would you make an indiscriminate return to Bitcoin if you found that you, you needed to, or that it was something that you had to revisit? Like, how would you, how would you, would yeah. you just underweight it or would you completely exit from it? We, we completely exit. Yeah. Uh, 75% drawdowns mathematically is a 50% loss. Yeah. with another 50% loss and people won't go near asset class when they say that. So based on the work we did, history's shown that there's typically a blow off top and then a very large drawdown. If that were to change, if the institutionalization, that, that new capital came in and because of the larger... Um, total valuation, if we didn't see that kind of momentum where you have a 100% price gain in two weeks, we probably wouldn't go to a zero allocation. Something's changed. The data showed that the thesis may not be correct. But the thesis so far, it's an ultra sickle and there's times to own it. And there's one year in the cycle you probably don't. It doesn't mean that we don't want it for the next 10 years, maybe 20 years. But one in four, you probably want a zero allocation. And from a tax perspective, all of our allocation went to our family tax-free savings accounts. There are no taxable consequences of selling this asset. There's no tax tail wagging the investment dog. And that makes it much easier to sell than not. And, and right now, we're on 5 to 6x returns. We've been trimming because we have to, but a 5% allocation that, that's gone up over 500% looks good. <laughs> So, so this you, you have this thesis and you understand the cycle for Bitcoin and you're really looking for that blow off top, kind of like a, uh, a typical, a classic bubble type cycle. Is this the only asset class you apply that modeling to or do you, do, do you also take an active risk management role in other asset classes? Well, this one's so much easier to see. Um, you know, I was around... In late 99, early 2000, I saw what happens with tech stocks. Um, that happened with altcoins as well, last cycle. And it, it may be something that we apply to, to, to crypto going forward. So if we do have a bluff atop, all the other tokens that we looked at really are more like VC. And 
to have crypto winter, a real bear market, um, and things are sped up faster than stocks, it's possible to allocate to other crypto next cycle, but do it in a in the VC bucket as opposed to the digital assets. I think Bitcoin and the rest of crypto are very different animals. And to, to not differentiate, I think is probably doing a disservice to our families. Now, as you got into the world of real estate and the way you thought about real estate, that, that framework that you kind of walked us through, um, is that same framework is, is what you applied to everything else, including Bitcoin? Like, this, yeah, very this much kind of so. like thinking from an orthogonal view. And you see that you have a pretty successful firm. Um, how much of your success do you think stems from the performance that you created by taking a chance that I think a lot of banks wouldn't take or wouldn't allow their advisors to take? How much do you think had to do with just being at the right place at the right time through that framework versus just, you know, creating a fantastic client experience and, and, uh, and, um, you know, uh, managing the relationship. Well, it wasn't luck. Um, it, it, having career risk is part of doing what's right for the families you serve. And that's the difference I think at Northland. So, from day one, we invested in private equity. Day one, we invested in private real estate and private debt. We added hedge funds 2012, so a year out of the gate, even though I'd been investing in hedge funds since the late 90s. Adding you know, private equity on the secondary side, as soon as it became available, it was very attractive. Uh, we put capital to work in that area. And finally, with, with Bitcoin, it's about taking what you learn while you're doing things like the CFA to give you some of the framework to take life experience. And what I was taught by my mentor, George Fraser, and with him being 60 years in the industry, what he showed me is if you can create a portfolio that has moderate amounts of volatility and once a cycle, you either make an opportunistic or a distressed investment. And, and in this case, um, Bitcoin was opportunistic previous cycles, real estate was distressed. And that's what creates the alpha. And George is there in the Morningstar Lifetime Achievement Awards, along with guys like John Templeton, Peter Condal, Stephen Jaroslawski, Rob Cramble, Warren Goldring. And, and that's who I was mentored by. So you want to take everything and give that to your families. That's a great answer. And have you seen, um, 
as you've as you've walked forward over the last ten years, and I, I suppose that Northland's going to have a tenth anniversary at some point this year. If you started in eleven, so it's twenty twenty one. So I, I think yeah. that's. I hope I hope we're invited, and there's going to be a big party. Probably a Zoom party. Cayman. Yeah, <laughs> in Grand Cayman by Zoom. Yeah. Um, uh, so. The private equity or sort of certainly the, yeah, the private equity uh, market has changed quite dramatically. I would imagine over the last 10 years, I'd imagine the amount of money that's chasing it now and the deals that you might see now or that you're entertaining now may have slightly different valuations than they did when you started or do they? I mean, I, I guess that's a question. Are you seeing the flood of money coming into the private space affecting the potential future returns in that space? Absolutely. So, what we've seen in the last decade was a lot of money going to to growth equity, late stage VC, uh, especially service as a software and in IT. Where we think the world's going is back to value, that the bifurcation of growth versus value is at an all-time high. And there will be opportunities in the growth, um, in the P space that has a value bend. So buying traditional companies that trade at lower book to um, price costs will provide better returns. And, and that's where we're starting to layer into. Um, with secondaries, there's always a great spread between what you're going to bid and the underlying NAV. And it's easier to see what's there because the portfolio has been built. Uh, I think that is going to continue to stay to a degree. That secondary market will continue to get more liquid. And it's starting to feel like Wall Street from the 1800s where it really was just, you know, by appointment or over the counter. But there is a growing degree of liquidity uh, versus what there was a decade ago. And from a risk-reward standpoint, what makes private equity attractive is that you're expected to trade on material inside information. Otherwise, you won't do the deal. It's difficult in the public markets to make full decisions that you've you've seen everything. There's a lot of guessing. Whereas the private markets, you, you can take what you know, you can take what's going on at the company and make a better investment decision and pay closer to the correct price. Is there any impact coming from the SPAC world into the private equity world as they do sort of these uh, types of deals in the marketplace? We've really shied away from the SPAC marketplace. Um, it, seemed, it seemed like a good way to raise capital, but the valuations and the multiples didn't make a lot of sense. Um, and again, when it's in the public world, you're not going to get the granularity of the detail that you would get if it was private. So it's a way for the retail public to get access to private because you don't know what the heck they're buying. They just said they're going to do it. But it's hard to get a lot of the, 
the, the deeper details. Um, so for the most part, we'll, we'll stick to the private world. Yeah, you don't, you don't have that information asymmetry potentially. No, I don't mind signing in DAs. I, I like that. Right. If, if we don't so, know who the investors are around us, we won't invest. Can I just bring the, uh, conversation back to the value versus growth, uh, transition that you're seeing. I've heard a lot about this. I have my own views on it, but I'm curious to know why we think that value is going to be a better investment in the next 10 years. What, what particularly about value makes it more attractive in this cycle? It's like skinny bear jeans versus baggy jeans. It's, it's, it's fashion. When you look at financial companies, the banks, for instance, they have a difficult time when interest rates are low. They've put tremendous money into their systems in the last decade. And it looks like interest rates are slowly going to start to rise. Not a lot, but they will. And the efficiency that they've picked up from improving systems and the fact that they're priced inexpensively can allow you to get a good return or at least one that, that can be better than overpaying for a great growth story. And, and it's not that the, the new growth companies aren't really cool, but there's a limit that you want to pay for as an investor in order to skew the probabilities in your favor. That, that's all it's really about. Interesting. So we're looking at the, uh, one of the key things you said there is a slow increase in the interest rate that makes it harder to borrow in order to buy more growth. So GameStop and the like is probably going to have some issues. Um, but the, does that spill over as well to that Bitcoin cycle that you speak of when there's less free money out there, uh, it might affect the ongoing um, growth of Bitcoin and leading to it to that from from a cycle, sure. 70 percent decline. Yeah. If we had a interest rate spike at your end, you combine that along with overbuying, sure it can pull the price back. Um, from what I can tell, plus or minus 50 might be the new lows next cycle. <laughs> So we might be back here round trip in, you know, 18 months, two years. Right. As in like, it's going to go to 100 and then back to 50 is what you're thinking. No, if it hits 100, it'll go to two. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm thoroughly confused. That's the, that's, right. that's the problem. And if it doesn't and it just slowly grinds, then the cycle is morphing. It's elongating. And you need right. to look at it maybe as um, a longer term growth story, less cyclical and, you know, reduce the, the weight accordingly. Is there so you, you just talked yeah. about Bitcoin being a, uh, a, a big portion of your client's portfolio and the next cycle, you're going to look to the other areas of the crypto space, right? Cause it, there, there really is yeah, many categories within that. Right. So you're going to find an opportunity. But it's from a maybe, VC perspective. Right. So you see them as companies. So you got your Bitcoin, you got your Ethereum, you got the companies that are using Ethereum as their 
supercomputer in order to be able to offer their unique value propositions. And then there's all the other alternative exchanges and, uh, and altcoins. Have you thought about the different um, categories and buckets and uh, what they may represent for you in the future and your clients? First, first off, they're, they're companies without any shareholder rights. They're, they're more like loyalty points programs. And the airline can change the value, the way you're treated, and you have no recourse. So that's, that's got to be known ahead of time. Realistically, you know, might be two, two and a half percent exposure if private equity is 2025. So you can see crypto being a, being a tenth of P. Uh, again, Bitcoin, it's more, it's a digital asset to store of value. Now, what'll be exciting is layers getting built either above it or beside it, whether it's liquid that's been created by Blockstream out of Victoria, Canada, or if it's the Lightning Network that has the ability to do transactions tens of thousands of times faster than Visa or MasterCard. So I think a lot is going to be built on Bitcoin, but that process takes time. The other, the, the DeFi side, yeah, it's cool VC, uh, huge potential. And you'd want to be with specialists, specialist managers that all they do is invest in that space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a very good point. It's growing at such a fast pace that even the people that I know that have been in it for years are finding it hard to keep up. So most definitely, you're going to need some specialists there. Active management's back in the crypto space. <laughs> well, it's, it's basically <laughs> private equity, right? It's VC. Yeah. Um, and if you've... It, uh, I know the SEC is starting to continue, like, to consider a lot of crypto as a security and it seems like they are, but for now people can front run them. They can trade on material and information and there's no consequences. So those managers that can do that in that asset class, there's still an edge. It's the 1960s, the 1970s, and that's where you want to put your capital. But, you know, a, a family office with 10 staff doesn't have enough time to go through every single token and to know the story and to know what the management's doing. Yeah, so you, you didn't buy the Dogecoin yourself then for your clients based on <laughs> the Elon Musk research that you did? <laughs> no, no. The only uh, Dogecoin or doggy coin that I have is a style of camel on uh, a KB2 tank. I play on World of Tanks. That's that's my total exposure. I like that's it. your NFT portfolio. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Although, you know, you look at what happens to, uh, to rock and roll and, and musicians. You know, after the early 90s, like after Nirvana, what major band has created great music? And they haven't because the industry's broken. And I think if we can attach 
NFTs to music again to monetize and pay these artists fairly instead of having their their art stolen from them, maybe we'll have good music again. Yeah, it well, might yeah, be a I different mean, genre, yeah, but yeah, trend, there's the a trend handful of more of this. Go ahead. No, Mike, go ahead. No, I no, just I want just, them to yeah. get paid. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. So it's, it's sort of the transition to the, um, uh, away from a, a centralized hub of distribution that uh, cannibalizes the profit margin for the actual creator to more of a decentralized scenario where there's creators and they can go direct to market and the market will bear to them whatever fruit and profits largely to them and less so to the uh, the distribution platforms. And I think Absolutely. you write music music over the last number of years, even even pre Nirvana, quite honestly, was was pretty corrupted. I mean, there's all kinds of musicians who had, you know, um, their music uh, promoted at a very hefty cost. Yeah, and yeah, um, they get a very it's small, interesting. small margin. Mm-hmm. Like, when was the last real album produced? Maybe Joshua Tree, Peter Gabriel So. Yeah. Um, yeah, in the context you know, bef- of an album, I'm not. I'm not sure. You know, bef- I mean, before that, I mean, you know, whether it was Deep Purple, whether it was Black Sabbath. Just, I'm just sure so there's a whole bunch right? of millennials on this watching, just rolling their eyes, going, "You have yeah, no idea right. how much so, so, great well, music has been." What's created. interesting about that one? You old guys, Drake and the Weeknd. I read an article. Right? Drake and the Weeknd. Yeah. <laughs> well, Drake and the Weeknd were the first of oh, one of the first of musicians that really used the decentralization approach, creating their mixtapes, putting it out there, managing their future themselves, and getting significantly better um, distribution deals after the fact, right? After they made themselves fairly popular. And the issue with the traditional approach, which is you're begging a recording company to do all the work for you and you get 90 cents on the dollar or less, or even Spotify giving you such little amounts, is that they had to figure out how to make money with merchandise and the like. But even then, the deals weren't great, right? So what I love about the, uh, the NFT approach is that if you could... If you could have independence to create content outside of that latest album and you can sell it directly to your fans, that accrues directly to you. And it, it is like loyalty points, but that's okay. In that type of environment, it's exactly correct. You want to give them access to areas of your recording sessions that nobody else has. You want to give them you know, T-shirts and hats or whatever it is that is exclusive to those people that own your NFT. Uh, and similarly, in the arts space, my wife is an art specialist. And, you know, you see traditional artists also get screwed by the system. Uh, and most, mm-hmm. most of the people that accrue value in the art space are from the secondary dealers and the, and the, um, uh, the, the art uh, distributions and wh- whoever you can put your art into that has a name. And today, the NFTs have a lot, a lot of artists in the digital world that weren't making any money because it's digital to really protect their art distributed and a lot of them are not in the streets anymore trying to beg for money they're actually making some good dough um so it it is an interesting space especially for the creative for the creative world for sure for sure i read a i read an article i read an article this week that apple is paying 
artists a penny a stream. And and and, and wait, that's yeah. that's that's not that's the gross. That's not the net because they have to share that. They have to share the penny, the penny a stream. So so I mean, is it is is music is music popularity now basically the equivalent of a social network? viral post where where you know you're hoping you get a hundred million streams in order to make any kind of any, any kind of money i mean everything is everything is live nation now isn't it i mean most artists are making the bulk of their annual revenue from touring and selling merchandise so it's not really Dan Aykroyd takes the cut of that doesn't he wasn't he investing in live nation <laughs> yeah then, <Awesome>. then yes <laughs> If 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 yes, then yes. <laughs> I don't know. You're gonna laugh. So yeah. since 1976, from a Paul Halloween special, this crazy band comes down from an elevator, smoke and fire everywhere. And I went, oh my god, who are they? And and it was the rock band Kiss, and I've followed them ever since. And I was fortunate to be interviewed by Gene Simmons five years ago at the Art of Marketing in front of a thousand people. And these guys understood the value of what they created for their fan base. Was it the best music? No. It was entertainment, great entertainment. And they monetized it from shirt sales buckles, radios, into Kiss Coffins, and everything else now. And I'm sure they're, they'll find a way to, to create an NFT for their estates so their families stay wealthy. But they've always been outspoken on how the industry was broken. Or one of the other bands I followed, which was Metallica, and they sued Napster. And, and they won. And that was part of my research into Bitcoin because you can't shut down the Bitcoin network like Napster, like LimeWire. They all got right. shut down. It's, it's much more like BitTorrent. So that's, that's what appealed to me. But I followed that story from the 90s. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is very much like touring. You're seeing a lot of countries in the world. Oh, you've seen some India recently this weekend. I think Turkey banned Bitcoin, and um, you know, when in the past when it was Napster, you could walk into the server room and ensure that you shut down that server and it was toast, and you could sue the person that created and ran it. BitTorrents, every single time they've tried to shut down that server, there's just so many other. It's in every computer everywhere. It, they found it yep. increasingly difficult and they stopped completely. And similarly in Bitcoin, it's got enough uses internationally, both legitimate and more more legitimate than ever and will continue to be. So good money is chasing bad money out. Um, but uh, but I, I just, I would find it very difficult to see, especially the one that has the highest network effect uh, to be shut down in any significant way. Bumps, ups and downs, 80% drawdowns from here as this nascent technology continues up, for sure. Um, so, you know, caveat emptor. But um, but it is it is an interesting technology. It's, it's a life form. 
you know, Satoshi created an electronic life form that it's almost impossible to stop. It's a virus. It's an emergent phenomenon for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's fun to watch. So, so, so let so me Arthur, ask you, you down be... at... on you. Go ahead, Rodrigo. I was just going to ask you if you saw if you if you're planning on looking seriously at Ethereum. Again, it's more a VC play. Um, yeah. It would just be in a different bucket. So, you know, I, I talked to this really smart guy a few weeks ago about it. I think his name's Mike Philbrook. And, and apparently Mike <laughs> compares it to oil, uh, which I thought was a phenomenal analogy. Um, so that's what I'm using from, from now going forward. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. Bitcoin's the gold and Ethereum is the, uh, the uh, petrol that makes it yeah. roll. Yeah. Arthur, you started investing a while back for your clients and the regulatory landscape has shifted. Uh, and continues to shift here. I'm curious to to hear how you ha- dealt with allocating Bitcoin for your clients um, in the family office space, and how do you see that going forward as an advisor? Do, do you think it's business as usual, or is it going to be much more difficult to uh, to help get clients exposure to this asset class? Well, it's easy with you know, all the ETFs and closed-in funds available in Canada. We we accessed um, a precursor to QBTC uh, privately through 3IQ before QBTC was publicly listed. That's how we got exposure. And from there, we've used QBTC primarily, as well as a couple of other ETFs. That's where... As a professional, we will access it for our families as as a security or wrapped in a security. But what I find is a lot of family members of all ages, from the the founding generation to grandchildren and great-grandchildren, want to be able to learn about it and to custody it themselves whether it's through a hot wallet or a cold wallet. And the fastest way that I can show how powerful the technology is, is to have an 82-year-old client download an app on her phone and five minutes later, she's got Bitcoin. And she's like, wow, this is way easier than opening a bank account or setting up all my trust with you guys. This is the way it should be. And now I can do something with my great grandkids. So th- there's a there's a huge um, light bulb moment where they start to get it. And although we didn't have that as much, we, we actually brought out uh, Dr. Savidi Moose, the author of the Bitcoin Standard, in November of 2019. And we, we hosted a presentation for about 60, 65 people. And dinner for 30, where people would just throw them questions and learn from one of the, the preeminent experts in the world. And it wasn't a sponsored dinner. We had people from uh, the Bitcoin industry, even from uh, Mike Novogratz's family office, K- 
came in, we had everybody from crypto in Canada that, that really was part of it and our family members. And they, they got to interact and, and bounce ideas of each other. And it was great. We, we even had this former uh, junk bond uh, salesperson trader, a guy named uh, Greg Foss. And he met a, a lady who works at another hedge fund, a credit hedge fund, who didn't believe in it. And his first line out is, how about I give you 10 to 1 odds that Bitcoin goes to zero. And she goes, yeah, that's about right. Good. And he goes, well, I think it goes to a million. So based on the math, today Bitcoin's at 8,000. It's worth 100. Do the trade. And then her light bulb went off. She went, oh, I get it now. So <laughs> there's, there's just different ways to explain it. Is it an option, a perpetual option? Is it an asset? Is it a collectible? Is it communication? Is it language? It's all of those things. And did you have to go through a, a big learning curve for your clients when you first introduced it? Or were they already up and, and ready to go? The Inquisitive uh, took us up on our presentation offer. And, you know, we had 24-ounce sous vide steaks, porterhouses for everybody, crypto carnivore dinner. It's the only way to go. And vegan options. Um, because safe eats five pounds of steak a day. That's all he eats, steak and water. So we gave everybody the real experience. Um, people that didn't attend, I had some people screaming at me in a boardroom. And they're like, we've talked to our lawyers, we've talked to our accountants, we've talked to advisors, and they say, it's all a Ponzi scheme. Why would you make this investment? You don't know what you're doing. And then I ask, well, have they met all these people? And they're like, well, no. I said, well, I have. And I probably have met Satoshi. So <laughs> go do what you want. We'll sell the position but I'm not going to apologize to you. And two years later, everybody's looking going, my God, I can't believe we're here. And, you know, it's, it's added, what, 5% to our returns, you know, across portfolios on a five-year basis. Yeah. So it's, it works. <laughs> yeah. How do you, um, I'm just going to uh, move away from Bitcoin for a moment back to the, the sort of the, the, the more um, higher level portfolio thoughts. And given that you're focusing in some private equity and private real estate, how do you think about geographical dis, uh, sort of um, uh, diversification? Are you mainly in Canada and North America? Are you able to source deals from the globe? And then, and then, you know, when we look at sort of forward looking, um, expected returns for asset classes. You look 10 years ago, you know, bonds had nice juicy returns. U.S. equities had nice juicy returns. Um, and those have come down quite a bit. Emerging markets, you know, call it value, whatever the case may be, have, have sort of inverted and now have much higher expected returns over the next 10 years. And so how are you thinking about that 
with respect to the private equity, private real estate side of the business? Are you staying home, sticking to your knitting and diversifying through public markets? Or do you have access to, you know, some emerging market um, private deals? How are you thinking about the global diversification in the portfolio, given the, the tilt that you guys have taken? Yeah, so when Northland was created back in 2011, most of our real estate exposure for our families was either the principal residences and, and what other private real estate they owned. And again, distressed through the smile states, so U.S. distressed. We found a very good REIT manager, a private REIT manager that specialized in C-class apartments. My family owned them, managed them since I was a child. I can't take client monies and put them into my family's real estate, but I knew what to look for, what was properly run. And when this manager started doing joint ventures with Kingset Capital with you know some of the, the smartest real estate investors in Canada, that was the final uh, check mark. And we, we allocated tens of millions of dollars to uh, Canadian multifamily, specifically Ontario. And we've generated high teens for the last decade. Uh, so it's worked very, very well. Uh, probably two and a half, three years ago, we, a lot of the positions from the U.S. had been sold off we started to reallocate and to, to build our U.S. position up. So reducing our Canadian multifamily, reducing Canadian exposure, and adding more in the United States, Europe, and a little bit in Asia. Uh, and right now, it's funny, but we see a lot of opportunity in hotels. So we're with one of the, the best global managers in the hotel space. And it's only probably a third of their portfolio, but they're, they're allocating to that sector. They've done some uh, very newsworthy moves the past uh, month and a half. And, and we see uh, some very good return profiles uh, from hospitality. And, 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 and do you guys incorporate any kind of precious metal exposure or is that sort of covered through your um, crypto uh, exposures? We, we have gold. And I think it'll be an okay rate of return going forward the next decade. Uh, year to date hasn't done well. But it does seem with the digitization of the world... And the way the next generation is putting capital to work, that gold's becoming antiquated. It's, it's still there. It's still real. But if one hedge works significantly better than another one, and it looks like it's going to con continue in some ratio like that, we might be to a point where we have no gold exposure and only Bitcoin to, to hedge that risk along with other real assets like real estate. 
And then how, how does real estate perform in, in sort of more inflationary environments? Let, let's hypothesize just for a moment that rates rise. As an asset class yeah. or a one-off where you're doing no, improvements with how you... More of an asset class. Um, you, you know, you're looking for some distressed areas and whatnot. I, I get that you're trying to put the probabilities in your corner. But how does, how does, that, how does that asset class respond to you know, higher, higher than expected inflation and interest rates? Is that a, is that a significant challenge? Is that a, or is it, is it the type of real estate? How, how do you view that? Or do you not view that as a potential risk? If you've got rent controls, you've got a large risk. So it takes a while for the government to allow you to, to spool up rents. You you want escalators in the commercial space. And again, things with shorter um, uh, rental periods allow you to increase the rates faster. Longer leases, obviously, it's like a long-duration bond. Interest rates go up. The value of that lease goes down dramatically. So, in, in general, rising inflation or rising interest costs will be a strong headwind against real estate. And you need to look at real estate opportunistically, where either you can add value or you can be in areas that allow you to get the rents up faster. It's not a perfect hedge, but in general, shorter leases in a rising rate environment would be better. It's like a short duration bond. Right. Gotcha. Great. Very insightful. I think think those who are thinking about this space as they, as they listen to, um, this, uh, podcast are, 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 you know, their, their wheels are going to start turning and saying, okay, I, I need mm-hmm. some real estate and whatnot. And I, I remember Rio can, you know, being the first REIT back in 93 mm-hmm. that I bought for clients and, uh, and no one else would touch it because it was a, just a brand new asset class in Canada and yeah. had a very sort of slow and steady rate of adoption. And, um, you know, it, it just goes to show sometimes you are rewarded for being an early adopter. And then there's lots of times when, you know, in a kind of asset class can fizzle and you want to yeah. make sure you manage your risk in those areas. But the way that compounding works is, you know, if, if you lose, as you, you mentioned the Greg Foss story, mm-hmm. if you lose all of your bet, all of your investment in one, and but you've made 10 of them and, you know, half of them have actually been 10 baggers or had much higher excess returns, you know, you're, you're playing the numbers, if you will. You're trying to get those diverse sets of bets in the portfolio understanding that some will inevitably not work out and yeah. uh, that's okay. Yeah. And I, What's you know, I did catch, um, I don't know if you were an investor in boardwalk, but yeah. I was an investor for clients when it was a publicly traded stock before it converted to an income trust. And it was difficult to sell in the high fifties, low sixties with an $8 cost base, but it was something that we had to do. And, it worked out. It was a great call, but yeah, I think eight times their money in less than a decade. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting about the, so, what you're describing is I, I, when I got into the business, my clients portfolios were hundred percent alternatives, a diversified book of alternatives, which is way out of bounds from a, being an advisor at a bank. Luckily I was an independent. What advice would you give to 
there's a, this is a, a channel geared to advisors. Um, what advice would you give to the traditional advisor that's had a hard time with traditional asset classes and is thinking about taking a step towards the alternative space? The dispersion of return alternatives is much, much wider than the public markets, much wider by a magnitude of 10. If you can get access to top quartile managers, don't invest in the asset class. It's that simple. Um, and, and that's why I think there's so much pushback by a lot of um, professionals about investing in alts. Because if you're only getting the median or God forbid, you know, third quartile, fourth quartile, your returns can go to zero very quickly. Whereas a broad-based equity fund, not a sector fund, but a broad-based equity fund, maybe you underperform by 2% a year. Maybe you outperform by 2% a year. But when the standard deviation of private equity is 10%, um, dispersion around the median, it, it's too easy to lose all your money. So if you don't get best in class, it's better just to to not invest there. So buyer, be, buyer beware. Caveat emptor, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. I, I think there's so much talk around alternatives these days, but very little of it centers around what you just said, which is which is that the the dispersion of returns between between issuers um, is so wide that you really have to spend. You really have to do your due diligence. You really have to do your homework when you're looking at the space, or or forget it. Yeah, and you need clients to be able to write five million dollar checks too. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, there's there's That's, barriers to entry. There's there's huge, right? I'll, I'll, the great managers, it's five to ten million. And as an MFO, you can say, "Well, we'll do one check for two, one for one, a couple for five hundred, and now people with five hundred to get a two, three, five percent allocation." That makes sense, but otherwise, they could never get in the door. I wonder how crypto is going to solve this fractionalization problem of the <laughs> of the big managers. Yeah. yeah, get in there, buy a big chunk of the good managers, and then tokenize it, sell it to the world. Get in there, crypto. What, break everything up into satoshis. When they get too large, the the challenge becomes is the returns come down. So there's a balance between a growing best in class manager and one of the stalwarts that's um, they're just to collect you know assets they're, they're large publicly traded PE managers so for instance we we don't have capital with the Carlyle group but I was introduced to David Rubenstein's daughter Ellie who was starting up her own PE fund called Manatory Partners in the food agriculture um, asset class the sector space uh, out of the gate, the fund's done 50% IRR first year, and we've got a multiple 1.6 net of fees. But that's how you want to approach the asset class. It's She sees what the Carlisle group sees, 
but they can't invest there. They're not specialists. So they just pass it along. And she has a phenomenal professional team around her. Um, and that's what, you know, makes a difference. But you, you got to have deal flow, which is proprietary. And you need institutional structure to, to make sure that day-to-day business operations work. But being part of a $10, $15 billion buyout fund, uh, I don't see a lot of edge. You, you might get median return, but you're not going to get top quartile. It's less likely. Right. Are there any right. alternatives? Are, are there any alternatives in your portfolios that are sort of the more democratized versions, where where the availability isn't isn't necessarily, uh, you know, targeted at at ultra high net worth? There. There are some very good private debt managers that have wrapped their LPs with mutual fund structures that you can put into an RSP. And they're, they're quite good. They're Canadian-centric um, most, most times. Some involve lending um, in real estate in the United States, but that's a way to, to get access. And one of the first things that... We tell a business owner if they were going the RSP route is to look at IPPs because it's not so much that they're taking more money out of the company or we're going to get more manage, more assets to manage. An IPP can invest in limited partnerships. An RSP can't. So all of a sudden, the world becomes your oyster and you can allocate to more places and if you have good opportunities, you're going to get better returns. But but there's some great private debt managers that that are RSP eligible. Okay, fantastic. I guess it's also another it's another theme that runs through. I, I think successful investing. You really have to think about what it is that you're trying to accomplish, and most most investors may think that. And advisors always trying to accomplish the best returns at some level of risk. But that's not always the case. When you have investment boards, sometimes there are a number of different initi- uh, um, uh, items of, of importance that they're trying to fulfill. Like they would prefer to go with a very large manager who's approved across all of the various um, allocator, um, uh, sort of the mercers of the world, the, um, the allocator consultants. And that's achieving access to the asset class with uh, with safety in numbers, right? All your friends are doing that. But if all your friends are doing it, it's not going to achieve returns that are different than all of your friends. And so if you're trying to find managers within asset classes where you think the asset class could outperform and you'd also like some extra performance on top of that asset class, you're going to have to look for more of the emerging manager class, the ones that don't have as much assets, the ones that may not have a 10-year track record. And you're going to have to think from first principles on how you can get access to that if, in fact, your objective is to have those returns in excess of any said benchmark. And so there's going to be a level of discomfort that's required. And many people won't do that. And if you won't do it, that's fine. 
but you shouldn't expect that you're going to get these, you know, sort of um, unusually unique return vectors either. No, if you want to talk about neat stuff, it was probably 2013, plus or minus, 2012, where I, I took a serious look at risk parity, the, the all-weather structures. And, of course, I read a lot of, you know, work from, um, oh, I'm trying to think. Bridgewater. What's the, what's the big, the Bridgewater, Bridgewater, yeah, all, yeah. all their stuff. But, but then there was this other Canadian manager who somehow was part of a, an IROC dealer. And I thought, what the hell are they doing there? But they had, but they had phenomenal research. And, and it was part of yeah. the, the work and the due diligence I, I did. And, and we ended up allocating to, to AQR uh, because I wasn't going to allocate to an IROC dealer. But, <laughs> but part of that you know, exploration was, was the work that you guys had done. And it was, it was great work. And then that allowed me to, to pivot into uh, risk premia and looking at things like low volatility investing and read a lot of work on that, but I didn't like the way the indices were constructed. So very fortunately at the same time, 2014, BMO came out with ZLB and we were in the door in the first month. And it wasn't because the wholesaler knocked on our door. It was because of the work that I read from this Toronto firm. <laughs> <laughs> totally So agree. thank you. So thank you. <laughs> no worries. Raising we the like average. The word right out, that's for sure. Connect the dots. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, thanks, well, that, Arthur. That, that feels like a good place to... Yeah. Uh, start to wrap up we've we've been at it for about an hour just over an hour so uh thank you arthur i know pierre's got some yeah. parting questions for you so we're also yeah one more that. question okay it's uh would you rather question would you rather spend a week in the past or a week in the future and why week in the future something new let me learn why repeat history? So definitely in the future. How far? Be fun to see a thousand years. Oh yeah. yeah. There you go. Yeah. Sure. End up in a yep. like a burnt out earth, scorched earth. <laughs> Everybody's in Mars. Post apocalyptic. Someone's watching the Twilight Zone from the sixties. Yeah. I thought you were an optimist, Rod. <laughs> Went right to dystopia. Well, everybody's in Mars. Future. I think life in Mars is going to be fantastic. You just. So I, hope, Mike, I hope you can also what's, teleport what's to What's the Mars. definition of an optimist? Uh, oh, gosh. Or pardon me, a, a pessimist, I should say. Oh, a pessimist, I don't know. An optimist with experience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well said. All right. Arthur, thank you so much. It's been, no, uh, really appreciate it. it's been a very uh, enlightening conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much, guys. Thanks, Arthur. Yeah, the thanks, Arthur. Opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of advisoranalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. 